Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. Whether it's with someone close to you or someone you just met, sharing your faith can be difficult, but our God knows the challenge and his word contains wisdom for how to meet that challenge. In our current series, Living an Intentional Life, we're learning about the five eyes of evangelism. Identify, invest, intercede, inform, and invite. These five steps will help you to build a biblical strategy for bringing the gospel to others and watching for God to multiply your efforts. We're glad you're listening, and we hope the series will renew your commitment to spread the good news. Now let's listen in. so glad that you guys are here. I literally get giddy and excited every time we get to step into those waters and do a baptism. And you're looking at me now like, how's he dry foot baths? I am a ninja. Um, and I am, it's, I, I really do believe that there might be somebody else here today who is thinking through what that next step looks like for you. Um, and maybe you've been a believer for a long time, like Adrienne or a newer believer like Ellie Marie, and you're thinking, what is my next step of faith? It's to step into those waters. And declare publicly in front of friends and family and other witnesses the good news of what Jesus has done in you. It's the salvation that we declare as Jesus Christ died on a cross and was buried in a tomb but then came back to life. And because we believe he is alive, we know that we can be alive forever. And that story never gets old and never tire of telling it. And that's in fact what this entire series is about that we began last week and that we're continuing in today. It's five weeks on living an intentional life and what it means to not only know the gospel good news message of Jesus Christ, but what it means to share that gospel good news message of Jesus Christ, to live it out in such a way that it's winsome and it's attractive to the rest of the world so that other people will want to know the story of hope that we have to share. And I'm glad that we get to dive into that together today. I'll tell you, um, I became a parent almost 16 years ago. We are just shy of a month away from the oldest uh, being 16, getting her driver's license, basically being free in the world to do whatever she wants, not the case at all. And I'm thrilled about that. I remember just like yesterday, and the parents in the room can attest to that, no matter how old your kids get, you still remember key pivotal moments like them coming into the world as if they happened just yesterday. And on birthdays, we'll just go ahead and tell you, we, we reminisce and we think about those stories as we lean into Christmas in the coming weeks. Some of y'all already have your decorations out, no judgment here. We're going to be doing it pretty soon. But that idea of a nativity, people put out this whole like creche of the, the stable or the manger where Jesus was born and the people who visited like the shepherds and the animals and there's Mary and Joseph and then of course the Christ child. We call that a nativity when we refer to Jesus. Well, every single one of us has a nativity because it just means birth story. And so I'll reminisce in a couple of weeks about the moment when Lily Kate came into our lives. If it was 16 years ago today, we were in that 
third trimester, and we were getting to the point where we figured out, according to the words of the doctor, that it was going to have to be a cesarean section because apparently there's more than one way to go about birthing a baby, and it was scheduled for November the 15th, 2006. We were living in Florida, and we began making preparations, planning for that day. We knew that we were going to have to show up at the hospital in Volusia County that morning at 5 a.m., Susan having not eaten since midnight the night before, and I began to think to myself, do you know pregnant women? Like, this is real hard. Like, how are we going to deal with no snack? But we made it. And so three days before that, she actually went into labor. So unbeknownst to us, you can actually have your baby before the scheduled day. We had no idea. We show up to the hospital, stuff still in the car because we didn't want to be like those eager beavers who carried our bag inside, assuming that we were going to stay. We got in, and they said, yes, you are, in fact, having the baby tonight, Sunday evening, November 12, 2006. We were met by this angelic creature, and by the time she had been delivered, I want to spare you all those details, she was in the room with us later at night. Susan was somehow recovering from surgery, not able to get up, and Lily Kate began to cry. And I thought, okay, I've got this. And she asked me, very, do you want me to call the nurse? Offended a little bit, I was like, no, I'm in this. We knew what was going to happen to happen that moment, and I remember opening up the diaper for the very first time, again, sparing you all the details, and I saw a substance that I was not prepared for in any way. I was literally about to call the Mayo Clinic and Googling NASA because there is no way, shape, and form that this is what was supposed to happen in this moment. And in the trepidation and the fear over what had just happened in the life of my child, who was clearly not going to make it, what in the world, <laughs> my wife began to coach me about what to do next and that this is okay. Like there are those moments in life particularly as it relates to those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, when we see that the world is a mess and we don't quite know how to engage it and what we're supposed to do with it. And we're literally ready to call in the experts when you find out, no, you've got a coach. There's somebody on the other end who can tell you what to do. And really, that's what this series is about. It's about us leaning into the words of God and knowing that he has a plan for us to be able to handle whatever the mess is that's in the world and to engage it with something that's healing, something that's purposeful, something that honestly is supposed to happen. And so we engage God's word today from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. He writes to a group of believers who are dispersed literally all over the known world at the time under fear and threat of persecution. He says, but in your hearts, revere. And that word literally means to, to sanctify, to acknowledge, to literally recognize and declare that Christ is Lord, it's, it's literally the same word that we say if we go back to the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught his disciples how they should pray. We say like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, revered be your name, acknowledged as holy be your name. We're going to acknowledge and revere and set apart Christ as Lord in our lives because Lord means master. Lord means the person who's in charge. And then it says that we are to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, asterisk there, because we're going to come back to it later, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, asterisk there, because we're going to come back to that too, against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their 
calendar. I'll say this morning, and it's in your notes, if you're a person that likes to fill things out in a blank or on an app so that you can remember it later or stay awake in the moment, I get it. Hey, this is it. Giving an answer means making a proper investment in people's eternity. It's literally acknowledging the fact that we have a message of hope that is life-giving and life-changing. And when we're prepared to give an answer for where in the world that hope comes from, in the messiest of all worlds that we live in, we're literally making an investment in someone's eternity. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, he says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. Like, all joy and peace. We just came off of a series that was all about the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want to be filled up by the power of the Holy Spirit with every single one of those things. And according to Romans 15, 13, we want to make sure that the God of this universe, this is one of the prayers I pray for myself. It's one of the prayers I pray for my children. It's a prayer that I pray for us as a church that we would be so filled with joy and peace as we trust Him so that we can overflow with hope by the power of because we trust him it's because we have a master it's because we recognize that that he's in charge and even though we don't understand what's coming next and we've never seen this before and we've never encountered this difficult of a situation in all of our lives in fact no one has ever encountered something so difficult as this in their life no matter what we can trust that there's a master on the other end and i'm quite sure that in the moment when susan was talking me down off the ledge and telling me that this in fact was okay and was supposed to happen i might have uttered the words to her from her hospital bed recovering in surgery, are you sure? Like, are you positive? Like, you've never done this before, Eat. Like, are you sure? And I think of all the moments in our lives, my life, your lives, when we've probably looked at the great God of this universe who created the world that we live in and every being that inhabits it, and he's given us instruction and we read them out loud. He's given us instruction and we hear them in a still small voice by the power of the Holy Spirit in our heads. And we literally look back at him. Are you sure? Like, are you certain that this is your plan? Are you certain that you want to use me in this way? Are you certain that I can do this and not make an even bigger mess of whatever this is? We look back at the great master. Are you sure? He is. And so we pray that the God of hope would fill us up with joy and peace because we trust him. Because he's sure. And because we believe it. When we do that and we invest in others, what we're investing in is the, the kingdom of God. And when we don't, let's, let's just get this out on the very front end of this. Like when we don't take intentional steps to make those kind of investments in the lives of other people, it's because we don't trust our master. And because we're not revering him as Lord and we don't recognize that, that he's in charge and it's not just the lord that we're valuing in that moment it's not just the lord that we're revering in that moment it's literally looking at other people the way that he commands and instructs and lives out an example for us to look at other people philippians chapter 2 paul writes hey do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others like value others above yourselves 
not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. That idea of valuing someone else, it's literally to hold them in high regard, to consider them, to deem them, to account them, the people outside this room, as worthy of becoming people who are inside this room. I think the greatest difficulty for any of us, probably as believers in Jesus Christ, and certainly as as pastors, was the COVID-19 pandemic where we shut things down and where we had to socially distance ourselves in rooms, A, because we like others, and we just want to be around people. But never before in my ministry, and hopefully and prayerfully never again in my ministry, were we sitting in a room looking at, ooh, I hope too many people don't come. Because, y'all, we want standing room only. I want y'all to be crowded and uncomfortable in here. There's, There's room on your row for somebody who doesn't yet know the hope that you have in Jesus. And according to the instructions that we have from our master, you sure about this? We're to be the one who carry that message of hope. And the reason we do it is because we revere him. He's Lord, he's the master, he's in charge, but also because we value them. We know that they matter, or at least they should. That we're to engage people in this world as if they matter to God and that they matter to us. And the reason why we don't hold people in that esteem and the reason why we don't revere the Lord that much is because we're scared they might get bored, maybe. Or maybe it's because we're stuck in something. I put several in your notes this morning that you can write down. One, we're always stressed. Like always stressed out by something. Jesus made a consistent, constant investment in everybody that was around him. He made an even bigger investment in a core of 12 disciples and an even bigger investment than that in three of those disciples that he was leaning into the absolute most. And he always talked in illustrations and stories that people could grasp and that people could understand. We call them parables. One time in Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 27, he used the illustration of wildflowers, which who doesn't understand that? He says, consider how they grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Like these these wildflowers, look at how they're growing. And they're not stressed out. Have you, like, they're not, they're not worried about what's going to happen the next day. They're not freaked out every time that it rains or every time that a worm crawls by. Like they're literally, they're able to grow and they're beautiful. And if that is how God, verse 28, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it for the pagan world. Oh, you're about to associate us with unbelievers, people that don't trust that you're the master, people that don't believe that you're real. Ouch, you're, you're associating us with them. The pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. Literally, the master has this. He's got it all under control. We don't have to stress about all those details in life. He goes on to say, and it's quoted again for us in the book of Matthew, seek his kingdom and all those other things will be given to you as well. We're stressed out about all the wrong things and that keeps us from focusing our attention and making investments in the the right things. The other is that we're just bad stewards. We don't manage what we've been given really well. Somebody in the crowd came to Jesus that same chapter where it's talking about warnings, where it's talking about encouragements, and somebody asked him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said, man, I imagine Jesus said it with that inflection too, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, it's in verse 15 of Luke chapter 12, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed 
life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he went on to tell him about this guy who had an overwhelming amount of stuff. And the only way that he could manage it all was to go ahead and build a bigger barn just to store his things. And, and Jesus says that the great God of this universe literally looks at that man and says, man, you missed it. You don't know what matters. You're worried about your stuff. You're, you're trying to figure out how you steward the things that you've been given in the same manner. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 25. He said, don't just think that we're super stressed out and that we're bad stewards of what we've been given and that we focus on all the wrong things. I also think we're really conflicted servants. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a story that people would have understand about a, about a wealthy landowner who was getting ready to take a trip. And because he was getting ready to take a trip, he divided up parts of his property, parts of the estate, and he gave them to each of three servants that were selected to manage it while he was gone. And we talked about this story at the tail end of our sermon series on the, the fresh fruit under the idea of self-control. And this is what happened. So he gives five talents or five shares to this one servant. He gives two to the other and then one to a third. And the guy who gets five literally multiplies it and doubles it. In fact, so does the second servant. Like they both literally multiply and double what they've been given. And so when the master returns and he finds out their yield, he's literally like, well done, good servant. Like high five, way to go. You did exactly what you should have done in that moment. But the one servant comes back and it's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. It says, the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, master, I knew that you were a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvested where I had not sown and gathered where I had not scattered. You wicked. You should have. He said you should have given it to the bank and at least had some sort of interest when I returned. How many times have you and I hidden the gold that we've been given because we're afraid? Because we didn't know what kind of mess we were going to uncover. Because we weren't sure about what we were going to find. And because we did not trust that our master had a plan. Ultimately, that third servant did not know his master and was so afraid of messing up, he decided to keep it close. We're conflicted servants. We talk about the idea of that story and putting yourself in the narrative and understanding what it means from a, a legitimate perspective. And, and you and I might find ourselves in, at moments in life being the first servant who was given five. And then we might find ourselves at being another servant who was giving less. And part of our problem half the time is that we're looking at the person who has more and we're like, well, why did he get more? How come she got more than I did? And like we're figuring that out. The problem with the conflicted servant is not that we're busy trying to identify which servant we are in the story. The problem with the conflicted servant is that we would rather be the master in the story. I just want to be the person in charge. And the wicked, lazy servant so misinterpreted who the master was and did not recognize the servant that he was. And that's where we fail. Sometimes we just want to, let's just take that same lens out. Most of the time, I just want to be in charge. I just want to be the master of my own life. I want to be the master of this own universe. I want to be the person that's in charge of what's divvied out and when it happens, the circumstances that fall and the things that we encounter. I just want to be in charge. And so I'm hiding the things that need to be put out there in the world so that other people can see and know who the master really is. So being ready for us, being, being prepared for us to give an answer for the hope that we have to 
figure out whatever it is that we're going to encounter. Being ready means often being reminded. You and I need, need reminded. He goes on in that same passage about warnings to say in verse 38, like, like, like it's going to be good. It's going to be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Jesus like telling stories about a master goes away and leaves the servants behind to fend for themselves because he told another one at the end of Luke chapter 12. And when he does, these, these servants don't know quite when the master is going to return. It says in verse 38, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. In verse 40, it says you must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And part of our confession of faith, part of what we declared in those waters, part of what we say out loud in this room, part of the songs that we sung even today are an expectant faith that the same God who gave us Jesus at Christmas, who sacrificed him at Easter, will one day bring him back in triumphant return, and he'll gather together all believers. And our motivation as people who know our master and trust our Lord ought to be those who want there to be more of us whenever he comes, that the church would be larger, that the kingdom would be expanded, and that more people would get a chance to hear the same good news that we've heard. In Matthew chapter 24, he's like, hey, and the good news message of Jesus Christ is going to be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. We're a people that believe that Jesus Christ already came, and we're a people who believe that Jesus Christ will come again, but we don't know when. And because we don't know when, there's an urgency about our relationships. There's an urgency about our investments. And when we're spending all of our time trying to figure out other things in life and ignoring the fact that there's an entire world outside of these walls who we truly believe is going to spend eternity apart from God because they don't know and declare and revere his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, there ought to be a heartbreaking urgency about us to go and tell, to make the kind of investments that will earn us the rights to be heard, that will earn us the rights to be asked why in the world we have hope and what makes us different so that people will want to come and you and I need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that we're not promised tomorrow. We need to be reminded, according to the book of Job, that our days and our months and the number, they've all been numbered and that man cannot extend past it like every single one of us has an expiration date in this room and every single person out there has the exact same thing an expiration date that none of us know and if we're not promised tomorrow that means we have to make the absolute most of today because we don't know the hour that idea of being ready for the return of Jesus that's presented to us in Luke chapter 12 and in so many of the other spots where Jesus is teaching his disciples is the exact same word that's used in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, be prepared. Be ready. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that readiness in this story literally meant being the servant who had the light on, who had a torch lit ready so that when word came back that the master was coming you were able to go out and greet him with a light to bring him home it meant that the table was set and that the food was prepared so that he could have a snack when he walked in the door it meant that your long robe that you wore because people dressed differently way back then was tucked in your belt so that you were agile and able to move quickly and rapidly to go and welcome him home and to serve him when he was there we need to be about a spirit of readiness but we're too stressed out and we're bad stewards of the resources that we're given and we're really conflicted about who the master ought to be in this story to focus on what really matters and why people are important we got to be reminded 
Hebrews chapter 10 says that we have to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. There's no greater good deed than you and I being outside of this room representing Jesus in such a way that makes people want to know him and follow him too. So we need to be reminded. That's why we come in this place, to be reminded. That's why we gather together in community groups and homes, to be reminded of the good news truth that we believe and the good news truth that we bear out there in the rest of the world. And when we render and acknowledge him as master and we're ready ready to go into whatever it is that he's called us to do, we're literally accomplishing the goal of giving people a front row seat to who he is. Because always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you after people are always asking. And maybe you think to yourself, well, Nick, I don't I can't tell you the last time that somebody came up to me at work and they were like, hey, I've noticed that something is very different about you. Can you present the plan of salvation to me? Like, maybe that, ha- that hasn't happened. That happens to me every day. Some just kidding. That hasn't happened to you. Like people, ha- people don't just stop you on the street. Hi, I see the T-shirt that you're wearing. It says church on the back of it. Can you please tell me the four spiritual lives? People aren't always coming up to you and asking those kinds of questions, but believe me, they're asking. They're asking when they have a water cooler running. They're asking when they tell you that their weekend was terrible. They, they ask you with their social media posts or their Friday night activity. They're always asking. And the real problem is that we're not listening to the heartbeat of this world. At three hours old, lying conveniently in a crib that was provided to us by the hospital that said, do not leave child unattended on here. That was another scary moment. Our daughter cried. She didn't say, Father, can you please come and change my diaper? And while you're at it, maybe give me a few clues as to how I can avoid being this dirty again. Like, no, she didn't ask. And she cried. She didn't do that for herself. But the world is also crying. People are asking. People want to know what makes you different. People want to know what gives you joy. People want to know what provides you with peace. People want to know why there's a confidence in your eternity and what that means. We have to be prepared because the world is always asking. But when they do, here's the caveat. We have to make sure that what they see is is actually what he is. And we have to be prepared to give a reason for the hope because Jesus is hope. Not condemnation, hope. We have to be prepared to give an answer for who and what he really is. Sometimes we're really concerned in those moments because we don't know what the next question is going to be. Well, because I don't know all of the answers, I don't want to provide the first answer. Where's the logic in that? That's like saying, because I don't know all 30 answers to the things that are going to be on the test, I'm not going to fill out the ones that I do know in advance. Like, because I don't know what mess I'm going to find, I'm just going to leave that conveniently closed. And the world can just keep crying because somebody else, an expert, is going to have to come and figure that out. We have to be prepared to give an answer for the, the hope that we have. And regardless of what the problem is, and regardless of something, it's, it's, it's there and we've never seen anything quite like that before. We were not prepared for this. We have a master that we can follow and a plan that we can believe in. We have to be ready to share the hope that we have, the reality of who Jesus is. And we have to do that in a way that welcomes. We have to do it in a way that's welcoming 
in a way that provides love, in a way that whets the appetite of the world for the truth and the grace that Jesus provides. John Stott said this, that too much truth without enough love is too hard and that too much love without enough truth is too soft. And there are moments in our life when we have this fear, oh, I'm going to be too hard, and so we soften up and get a little bit too loving. Or, oh, oh, we, we're, we, we're, we're afraid that we might be too loving, and so we get out those Bible verses that make the gospel seem really, really hard. And there's a balance to what we do in life because we have to present the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that's welcoming, in a way that lets them know that what they'll ultimately encounter is love, in a way that lets them know that what they'll ultimately encounter is grace, in a way that lets the world know that what they'll ultimately encounter is forgiveness. I don't think there are very many moments when we as Christians are accused of being liars. It's not the truth that we believe that comes under fire. We are, however, often accused of being ugly. It's the way that we present it that needs to come into check. There has to be a loving, grace-filled, passionate, welcoming, forgiving, gentle. That's why Peter wrote that. Like, hey, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Like, we need the world to see the church as a gentle people, as a respectful people, as a kind people, as a loving people, before they will expect to see us as the right people. We've got to present the truth in a way that lets them know who the truth is and the way that he intends to encounter them. It's in a way that welcomes. The investments that we make, Scripture says this, Jesus told us persecution was going to come. The investments that we make will not be without corruption. Peter wrote it, he said, so that those who speak maliciously about your good behavior, there will be moments when we come under fire. There will be moments when we feel like failures. There will be moments when we're accused, but what are we afraid of? So many moments in life, there are those those opportunities to present the gospel and the good news hope that we have in Jesus. And instead of presenting it, we're hiding it in the ground because we're prioritizing the ease of an earthly friendship over an eternal fellowship with someone who, if their expiration date was this day or tomorrow, would not spend eternity in the almighty presence of God in heaven because we were worried about looking stupid or because we were worried about not knowing an answer. Who's in charge here? They have a master. Instead, there are those moments when we're more concerned about our reputation than than somebody else's salvation. The, The investments that we make will not be without some type of collateral along the way, but the alternative is being unfaithful. And unfaithful is just a really nice way of saying wicked and lazy. Because that's what servant number three was called when the master was coming. We have a master and he, he does know what he's doing. We have a master and he can coach us through what we need to do next. We, we have a master and you don't have to wait for all of the experts. Like you can literally engage the mess of the world and the mess of somebody else's life with an an answer of hope and a recipe of forgiveness that they can only find in 
Jesus. The wicked, lazy servant didn't really know the master, and he, he didn't see the bigger picture. Mother Teresa was once interviewed. She was once interviewed. She's interviewed a lot. And in one interview, this, this Lutheran pastor, friar, he, he asked her this question, like, hey, what, is, what, do you, what do you think the problem is with the world? And she says, the problem with the world is that we've drawn the circle of our family too small. Last week, as a part of the kickoff of this sermon series, Pastor Jeff Simmons invited us to, to write down five names of people that we want to invest in, people that we want to share Christ with, people that we want to invite to church, people that we want to tell the good news gospel of Jesus Christ, like people that we're praying for an opportunity to see, to be the light that they need in order to know and trust Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, as, as their life-giving Redeemer, like we wrote down those names. And one of the things that you and I always do is we draw the circle around our levels of influence way too small. You can impact a lot of people. In fact, we've provided, it's a ministry that we used to do a long time ago, and we've kicked it back off this series. It's called New Neighborhood. In the back of this auditorium over the next several weeks prior to decorating for Christmas, because that is coming soon, we've got new neighborhoods. And we'll make those readily available. Inside the box, you find cookie dough, like the pre-made mix that all you have to do is basically add like, I don't know, two things. And then all of a sudden cookies come out. And then some really nice packaging and ribbon and an insert card inside that tells about the church. And, and, and anytime you have a new neighbor, like anytime somebody moves down the street or maybe even next door or around the corner in your subdivision, you're invited to come to church and get one of those kits, take it home. You do have to do the hard work of baking. And listen, we're not going to tell you that you can't go from scratch. Like you can't add all those extra touches and make better cookies, but we are providing you some cookie mix that you can use. So this is really a foolproof, anybody can do this kind of activity where you find out that there's a new neighbor. That means that if you see a for sale sign in the yard two doors down, you've got about 24 hours before that house is sold and somebody is going to be moving in. And so you can identify, okay, I've got 24 hours to go to the church, get a new neighbor kit and invite. So you can be the neighbor that's like, whoa, that person's nice. They go where? Rolling Hills Community Church? Oh, I passed that the other day. I might check it out. You can be the neighbor that's known for being kind, for being welcoming, for making an investment, for offering a gift, not of some pre-made cookies, but of a little bit of hope in a brand new place. Like we want to equip you with the tools that you need to go out and engage whatever kind of mess you're in, going to engage in the world with an investment that will last. And it's not limited to the five people that you wrote down last week. You can draw your circle of influence a little bit wider than even that. You've often heard the quote or the idea that when we have all we need, we shouldn't build higher fences. We should, we should craft longer tables. I, I would love for this to be a standing room only kind of place. We'll just add a service or we'll add a story, like whatever we need to do to create more room because the kingdom of heaven is not limited to the number of seats on your row. The amount of influence that you can make is wider than you think it is. And the investment that you can make is bigger than you even feel prepared for. Somebody can point you through it. There's a master who has called you to it. And at the end of the day, what we have to reckon with, I said that word seven, reckon with, is that the investments that we make in other people 
don't boil down to our preparation. They boil down to our obedience. Whether or not we know the master and whether or not we believe that his good news is worth sharing and we're willing to share it in the way that's loving to a people who just need to know that there's a God who loves them. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. We do thank you for the chance to be in this place and to celebrate the good things that you're doing in the life of our church. And to celebrate the gift of salvation that you have given to us so freely. God, our prayer today starts out as one of confession. God, collectively, believers in this room, people who have confessed you as Lord and Savior, people who have asked for your forgiveness, people who have said, oh, we are sinners in need of God's grace. We've, we've failed to prioritize that in the world. And we've missed opportunities to share the good news that we, we were too afraid. We were too ill-prepared. We were sometimes, God, too busy to even notice the person right in front of our face who just needed to hear a kind word from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to prioritize the investments that we make and spend our time and our conversations and our effort and our activity on, on the stuff that really matters. That people may know that you're good, that people may know that you love them, and people may know that you have a plan. God, you're so good, and we tell you today, thank you for the salvation you've given. God, we ask that we would be good stewards of the resources that we've been provided to share the good news with others. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app or follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful you spent some time with us today. See you next time.